three, two, one. Welcome to Kentucky Caliber. I'm your host, Jason Belcher. I'm a small business owner, military veteran. Today, we're going to be talking about the power of the past. Specifically, we're going to talk about some legislation that's working its way through the state legislature here in Kentucky. Bill Request 60, which I think was formerly known as House Bill 14 and 18, which outlines a provision that would dictate the way and the manner in which history would be taught in Kentucky classrooms. It would specify certain things history teachers are allowed to say, certain things they're not allowed to say. And by the way, this is not uh, isolated to the state of Kentucky. Tennessee, Oklahoma, Indiana, other states out there are trying to pass similar legislation. For folks who are running for office here in the state of Kentucky, I hope that uh, you will oppose this legislation and go on the record uh, as opposing it. I also hope you will sign a pledge stating that if the law were to be passed and you were to be elected this year, that you would work to repeal that legislation uh, as one of your first acts uh, in your new office. But the why is very important. The why is very important because it goes beyond a mere, merely competing political agendas. There's a much more important and much more fundamental reason why the legislation that's being proposed is not only unworkable, and makes the teaching of history impossible, it's actually a first attempt to erase the subject of history itself as we currently know it. And I'm going to explain why that is here in just a second. So I wanted to take just a minute and talk about the conflict between the study of history from a scholarly standpoint and the memories that, that folks have in communities or families or in individuals that they share with each other and what they think of as their common past. And, and I'm getting this from, the, the first part of this is from Gordon Wood's book, The Purpose of the Past, Reflections on Uses of History, which I would strongly encourage anyone who's interested in the topic of history to read. But the point being that history is like part of our, our identity because it's a, it's a form of memory. And, and you can use that interchangeably with the term heritage. And so, if you take someone who has a certain heritage that they've been taught and that they believe in, it's part of their identity and part of who they are. And if you come along and tell them that that memory or that heritage is wrong, it would be like telling them that the person who raised them all along and who they called mom or dad was actually not their mom or dad. So you can understand the sort of kind of shock to the system and all the emotions that that uh, brings out would have when, when we do that. You can expect someone to be angry or to be hurt or, or to just simply decide that they're not going to believe it. So now we're, we're, we're getting into some you know, pretty strong emotional territory when we do that. But here's the problem. People do tell each other stories and we, we share memories about the past. Families do, communities do, states and nations do. And here's where that comes into conflict with the actual study of history from a, a scholarly standpoint. As J.H. Plum wrote, um, true history, I'm quoting here, quote, true history is destructive because, quote, for, its, for by its very nature it dissolves these simple structural generalizations by which our forefathers interpreted the purpose of life in historical terms, end quote. So what does that mean? Well, we have an idea about 
things in the past because of what we've been told or taught either by our you know, parents, grandparents, school, wherever you, you got the stories from, they became, or your community, you grew, you grew up believing that that narrative of your past was true and it became part of who you are, part of your identity. Actual historical scholarship, when we go back and start looking at things, may uncover evidence that the, the stories you've been told were either not entirely true or were entirely untrue. And that can happen. And so there's always going to be an inherent tension between the actual objective study of history, as objective as we can be. Nobody can ever be 100%. But there's a, there's a tension between the study of the past as a scholarly endeavor and the telling of narrative history from a personal perspective. Those two are always going to be in past. One seeks to uncover what actually happened from an objective scientific standpoint. The other seeks to keep a memory alive from one generation to the next. And so they sort of serve, they have, they're related, but they ultimately serve different functions and they can come into direct conflict with each other. And we've seen that today with monuments, especially across the American South, with the ongoing controversies about whether or not Confederate era monuments or monuments that are depict people who were in the Confederate, uh, the Civil War rather, in the Civil War, should be displayed in, in public places. And communities have had these discussions and sometimes as we saw in Charlottesville, they turned violent. Well, so for folks who look at Confederate monuments and say it's our heritage, it's we have family members who served, I understand that argument. I have a great, great, either two or three times great grandfather who was a Confederate soldier. So that's in my past as well. However, when you actually look back, and here's an example of how this, the scholarly study of history comes into conflict with popular narratives. If you actually look at most Confederate monuments in the American South, if you look at when they were put in place, they were not put there during the Civil War or even just after the Civil War. In fact, most of those were not erected until long after the Civil War had ended. I'm talking 60, 70 years at least. A lot of those monuments were put up in the 1920s, 1930s, or the, or the 19s, the 1900s. So this is a full generation after the end of the Civil War. And so it raises the question, why did it take so long for Confederate monuments to go up when the war, after, when they were you know, put in place 70, 60, 70 years after the war itself ended. And when you dig down further, what you'll find is that even people who actually did participate in the Civil War, and I'll give you the most famous example, is, is General Robert E. Lee. He actually wrote, after the war was over, he wrote against establishing monuments to the Civil War for the very reasons that he feared that they would perpetuate a, a narrative of events that had no real bearing to reality. And indeed, that has happened, not just uh, in one or two locations, but across the South. And, and it's understandable because um, the number of people who were directly involved in the war, the survivors came home, and even those who lost loved ones, they told the next generation about what they had experienced in their own way. And so their personal narrative, their own personal heritage was told and retold over generations until it sort of took on a life of its own. And that life of its own was a version of events that, that was shared in collective memory. 
but was not necessarily 100% consistent with things that actually happened during the Civil War. And so that's an example of how studying the past can, can create tensions between. It doesn't mean that when you study the Civil War or you study the, the erection of monuments to the Civil War, that you're just going to, to go out and say, well, every, every cultural or every heritage argument is wrong. They're all false. No, we're not, not saying that at all. But you may find that a great many of them are riddled with memories and emotions, and then those memories and emotions colored the interpretation of events such, in such a way that the actual event itself was forgotten. Uh, and then it, in, in the end, it bears little resemblance to what actually happened during the Civil War itself. I would argue that that's the case. We could make do a separate show just on that topic alone. But that's just one example of how studying the past can change our perception or can, can challenge popular conceptions of what the past really was. And that, of course, is a very emotional and potentially divisive issue. As alluded to earlier, it, when, we, when we tell you that your, your, your father or your mother isn't actually your, your father or mother, that's quite a shock to the system. And there's, there's more than a few people who would just simply refuse to believe that. Or they would say, well, it doesn't matter. They raised me. So, in fact, they are my parent. Whether or not they, they actually had a biological connection to me or not, doesn't matter. That's who raised me. And so that's who I'm going to consider to be my parent. And so there's always going to be a, a bit of a divergence between the scholarly version of history and, and popular heritage or popular narratives about heritage, and then the Civil War is just one example. There's, there's many others. We see this also in a lot of different places around the world, and this is playing out today. There's a lot of interest in state control of the past and state control of what can be taught as the past. In other words, there are a lot of countries out there that, that much more blatantly than any of the proposed legislation here in the United States very directly control what's allowed and what's not allowed to be taught in terms of history. Ukraine is one example. There's very different perceptions amongst the Ukrainian people and the Russian people about, even though they share a common past, there's very different perceptions about what that past is and what it means. And one of the Ukrainian grievances is that in, in areas like Crimea or Eastern Ukraine, where there are large ethnic Russian populations and, and Russian influence in times past, when Ukraine was part of either the, the Russian Imperial Empire or it was part of the Soviet Union, there were very direct and deliberate attempts by the state, either under the czars or under the, the Central Committee by the, the Soviet Union, to outlaw the teaching of Ukrainian history, to outlaw the teaching of Ukraine as an independent state. And, it, and you can understand why, because any group that, that knows that they, have a, they were once an autonomous nation might start thinking about rebelling against the control of either the Soviet Union or, or, the, or the czars. And so it would make sense that you would want to, the, the powers at that time wanted to erase that from their history so that people would not know about it. But, but that's a, a very blatant example of where Ukrainian history was not just, not just criticized or condemned. It was, not, it was outlawed. You couldn't teach it. That was illegal. It was a crime. And under the Soviet Union, you could, you could go to prison for that. China is another example. The state control of the past has become, in the, in the past decade especially, there are numerous examples of legislation or laws in China that prohibit a certain kind of teaching and, and specifically require a very, a very meticulously controlled narrative about who China is and where they came from. And so when you see 
laws like that being passed here in the United States, it's very surprising that we have state legislators here in Kentucky is just one example that are emulating the efforts of lawmakers and the powers that be in places like China and Russia. But they absolutely are. They absolutely are because they have the same objective. They want to control what's taught about the past. And that, even though I think that is a, is a bad idea and it's a misguided effort and it's wrong, they are still, do, in doing so, they're still admitting and recognizing how important history really is. Because Otherwise, they wouldn't want to control it. So it matters. It matters. The, the perceptions of our past help us decide you know, what kind of future we want to have. And that's an, an interesting example that was, that's always brought out in the uh, dystopian science fiction novel Children of Men, where nobody, where human beings become sterile, they can't have children anymore, and so what they find, what the protagonist finds is that who's who's a, a, a scholar at Oxford, once people realize they have no future, they they lose complete interest in the past because what's the point? What's the point of studying the past if you don't have a future? And so, what kind of future we want to build? rests on a foundation of our understanding of our own past. And so when we get into these arguments about what our past really is or what kind of past we had as a nation, it's understandable why it causes so many shockwaves to go through not just communities and and states, but but the nation as a whole, because we are arguing and debating over things that are fundamental and critical. These are pillars of who we are and where we're going. And so if those pillars are either wrong or incorrect or being being challenged by those who claim they are, then you can understand the emotional impact that that has. And we're seeing that play out in school boards across the country. It's I think it would be a mistake to view that just as reactionaries, although there's certainly an element of that. There is unquestionably a reactionary element to the acrimony that's playing out in school boards who want to ban critical race theory, which isn't taught in most secondary schools, by the way or who want to ban certain teachings of history as contrary to the actual past of the nation. They want to control that. There there is a reactionary element there. But there's a larger concern about the accuracy of what students are learning in the classroom. Now, what students are being taught in a classroom is, is certainly a valid concern for not just parents, but for everyone. Because, you know, what the generation grows up believing will directly influence where the country goes in the future. And so that, I think, is a big part, it's a big reason why there's so much, there's so many uh, heated debates and, and animosity taking place in school boards, even though I think many of the, the arguments to ban things like critical race theory are, are unfounded. They're, they're not founded in actual fact. But the emotion is based on legitimate concerns they have about the way that the past is being presented, or that they have just a genuine difference of opinion about what happened in our nation's history. I think it's important to point out that there's no reason for popular narratives uh, or such as, you know, the types of memories that are handed down from one generation to the next. There's no reason for that to be an outright conflict with the, the study of history as a, as a formal academic sort of endeavor. The two have the same goal which is to remember the past and to understand what happened. Even though that they, they use different approaches, there's no reason that these two different uh, ways of remembering things that happened in the past, there's no reason that they have to be in outright conflict. And there's certainly no reason why one has to have complete dominance over the other. 
And I think that this this bill that, that I referenced here in Kentucky seeks to do exactly that. It seeks to establish complete dominance of one narrative of history based on pop, based on popular understandings, and it seeks to impose that on the professional study of history such that uh, the challenges that professional historians might bring to popular narratives should be suppressed. And I think that's a mistake. And it's a mistake because our, our, the study of history is ongoing, and that means it's going to change over time. And that's a good thing. Sometimes it may change in the wrong direction for a little while until there's a course correction. But if we lock into place a rigid set of restrictions, then that can never happen. And so what I'm saying is that the legislation not only stops the teaching of history, it sets the stage for the dominance of you know sort of popular narratives over the study of history itself. And eventually you could even see how that the formal study of history could be replaced by a, a, just, just popular narratives and that there would be no more formal study of history. And that would be a loss. That would be a loss for, for the country. The, history, the study of history has already contributed a lot to not only America's nationhood, but to those who, who have benefited from it. So I think it would be a mistake for us to allow that to happen. What we want is for the sort of popular memories and narratives that exist in you know families and communities. What we want is to find a way to help the formal study of history and those types of stories to work together or to complement each other. Maybe they can never actually work together, but they could certainly complement each other. And so there's no reason why we can't set out to find ways to help them do that instead of trying to establish the dominance of one over the other, whether it's by legislation in the state legislature or by the real or perceived attempts uh, of academics to do that in the classroom. And I think from, from critic standpoints, uh, critics of, for folks who, who use terms like, well, there's a left-wing indoctrination, you know, I, I don't believe there is, but for folks who do think that, their perception is that the universities are using their power to dominate the view of history. So they want to fight back with the state legislature by letting the state legislature dominate uh, the views of history that are taught in the classroom. And so we're, we're really fighting over the same thing and instead of trying to work together to gain a better understanding. Should we be concerned about efforts like the legislative proposals here in Kentucky? There's some in Oklahoma. There's certainly several in Tennessee. There's many states that are proposing these kinds of laws that would dictate how history would be taught. Yes, we absolutely should be concerned about that. I mean, can you imagine if the states, these states pass legislation telling uh, science instructors, you, can't, you cannot teach anything that suggests that the earth revolves around the sun. You can only teach that the sun revolves around the earth. So any evidence that you that you submit to the contrary will be illegal. Now, I, I bring that up specifically because you know, of, the, of Galileo's past, who had a, a run-in with the Catholic Church of his day in the, the 1600s, where he was told, you can't you can't teach that that the earth revolves around you can't conclude that the earth revolves around the sun because that contradicts religious teachings well of course the problem being that those teachings were flat wrong the earth does revolve around the sun that's a, just a simple fact of science uh, yet he was forced to say you know, under his breath or, or he was rumored to have said under his breath you know nevertheless it moves whether he really did or not we'll probably never know uh, but the point being the the setup between the beliefs of those in power and the actual facts of the natural world is a very old, um, it's a very old thing. We've seen this before. 
And so it's not surprising that those in power think they can dictate reality to the rest of us, but they can't. They can't do that. They can they can certainly they could pass this law and maybe it'll it'll as I said earlier, maybe it'll get shot down by the courts, maybe it won't. Um, but they're setting themselves up for failure. Uh, it's an impossible task to put the kind of restrictions on teaching history that they suggest and still teach history. It won't be history anymore. It would just be some some version of uh, state propaganda. So yes, we should be concerned. How concerned should we be? Concerned enough to reach out and contact state legislators and to tell them to oppose this legislation. Concerned enough for people who are running this year as candidates for state office to, to sign a pledge that they would repeal such legislation were it to be passed. I would also say that we need to think bigger and we need to take the time to ask the big picture questions about the, the subject that we're dealing with. What is history? If we say our answer is the study of the past, think about how extraordinary that really is. No other creature in the entire world, no other living thing on earth has a sense of the past except for human beings. And think about how difficult it really is to understand or to even know about events that happened before any of us were born. Only recently, in the past century or so, maybe a little longer, has there been existing technology to record, either through video or audio footage, sections or samples of things that actually happened during that time. Prior to the invention of audiovisual technology, the earliest cameras or the earliest microphones, there were no actual records in terms of audiovisual content before those before those technologies were created. So in order for us to know what happened before that, we have to rely on very different mediums than most of us are used to encountering in our daily lives. Our daily lives are, are saturated with audio and video content. We take it for granted. But more than 100, 150 years ago, all those events that took place prior to that time were not recorded on either a, a video capture or an audio recorder. So we had to rely on different ways to find out what happened. And the subject of history is getting bigger each and every day. Our population here in the country is as large as it's ever been. Events keep happening at a, at a very rapid pace. And so there's going to be more and more things for future historians to study. So even while the field of history itself continues to grow just by the accumulated number and weight of, of different events that take place from one generation to the next, at the same time, we're facing a critical manpower shortage in the field of history itself. According to the eminent historian Gordon Wood, from 1970 to the year 1986, the number of undergraduate history degrees which were granted in the United States dropped by two-thirds. Two-thirds. That means during that time period only one-third as many students chose to study and receive a degree in history as those had in years past. And that is a trend that has unfortunately continued. And it should be noted that even during that same time, overall the number of students enrolled in college increased. So the number of students went up, but the number of those students studying history went down significantly. And what that means is there are fewer scholars, trained scholars of history today than there were a generation ago. And that has had implications, not just in practical terms, as in finding qualified people to teach 
the subject of history either at the university level or at the high school level or, or the elementary school, we call the secondary school level. It, it's been difficult to find enough qualified teachers, but that also means that it also reflects a, a general trend in society that, we've, that we were kind of losing interest in this topic. According to the eminent historian Gordon Wood, from 1970 to the year 1986, the number of undergraduate history degrees which were granted in the United States dropped by two-thirds. Two-thirds. That means during that time period only one-third as many students chose to study and receive a degree in history as those had in years past. And that is a trend that has unfortunately continued. And it should be noted that even during that same time, overall, the number of students enrolled in college increased. So the number of students went up, but the number of those students studying history went down significantly. And what that means is there are fewer scholars, trained scholars of history today than there were a generation ago. And that has had implications, not just in practical terms, as in finding qualified people to teach the subject of history, either at the university level or at the high school level or, or the elementary school, we call the secondary school level. It, it's been difficult to find enough qualified teachers, but that also means that it also reflects a, a general trend in society that, we've, that we were kind of losing interest in this topic. We kind of decided we wanted to study other things. Or we wanted to study something else. We wanted to focus our attention elsewhere. And there have been consequences of that. Without trained historians to at least attempt to objectively write, you know, sort of the grand narrative of American history. And I'm, I'm only, I'm focusing on American history here, not world history. But without trained historians to at least attempt to be objective in writing sort of the grand narratives that we were used to hearing, what we've witnessed in the in the recent the past you know say 30 years is people who are who are less qualified and make no pretenses about being objective at all were willing to step in and do historians jobs for them so what does that mean what am i what am i saying whereas before we had professional scholars writing narratives of the past and and by the way their their work is certainly subject to valid criticisms from folks who have studied this topic more recently, absolutely it's true, but they at least wrote a grand narrative and they attempted to be objective. When that stopped, what we witnessed was people who were less qualified, didn't care about objectivity at all, were very willing to step in and create their own narrative of the past, whether or not it bore any resemblance to the real thing. And we see that today. And that is one of the things, I think, that this legislation is designed to protect is that we don't want these superficial versions of the past that have been created to ever suffer any criticism or to ever be challenged. And the problem with that is history is organic, meaning it is constantly growing. It's an ongoing process. There is no end state where we stop and say, okay, now we've got it. We've learned everything there is to learn about the past. We've concluded everything there is to conclude about the past. And here's what those conclusions are. So now the only thing left is for students to memorize the approved conclusions of the past. 
history will never reach that point. Really, neither will the, the hard sciences, although they get closer. You know, there, there's certain things, the boiling temperature of water, the physical properties of chemicals and substances, the laws of physics, those get a lot closer to that point where scientists and research over the decades and centuries have uncovered things that we can conclude are more or less permanent. And we've learned about as much as we can learn about that. Of course, there's new areas of study and new areas of learning to explore. But there are basic facts and basic laws that science has. History, not so much. It's not so much because of the nature of the subject and the nature of those who are studying the subject. We all come with our inherent assumptions and biases and, and we all want to focus on one thing and not on another. And so the, the person who is studying the past also brings a unique perspective to their efforts. And sometimes that leads people in different directions. In the past 30 years, this has led to a change in the way history has been studied from something of a social history to, as Gordon Wood put it, a cultural history. So what does that mean? Well, a social hi history is one of those things that we have, we, we, I would call the grand narrative, the story of the nation. And in, it is true in, in earlier versions of those grand stories, a lot of people were left out. And that was a glaring omission on the part of the people who wrote it. But modern cultural historians have tended to swing too far in the other direction. Whereas, at, whereas we started to only include those who had been omitted, now it, there's become a movement to simply focus on them, to focus on groups that were once excluded and exclude everybody else. So we're just going to flip the script. Whereas we had a, one narrative that excluded a group of people, now we're going to take the people that that narrative excluded, focus only on them, and exclude everything else. So you could say that the, the pendulum has swung too far uh, back in the other direction. While scholars generally try to promote enthusiasm for the study of history, sometimes the work the scholars themselves did worked against that purpose. And, and I'll give you an example. There was an article written by uh, Professor Fukuyama in 89 or 90, somewhere around there, and the title of the article was The End of History. And this piece became a very popular, a very widely, widely cited and widely studied piece of writing wherein the author claimed that what he was talking about when he said the end of history was that the major questions for how to best organize a society had already been settled. It was best to have a democratic election process and a capitalist economy. And keep in mind, when, when that was written, that was written just after, I mean, in the immediate, you know, just after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And so when that was written, it certainly looked like that those questions had already been settled. And because the United States was standing uh, atop the international order in this sort of triumphant moment with its major enemy vanquished. And so it certainly looked like that having a capitalist economy and a democratic society and democratic elections, it certainly looked like that those questions about which way was the best, what was the best kind of society to have, had indeed been, been answered or been settled. Well, you can understand how uh, an article like that, when it not only was circulated widely among scholars, but also in the general public, if, if it's popular among scholars that, that, that we've seen the end of history, then it would be understandable for some folks to, to read that or hear that and to think, well, then we don't really need to study it anymore formally. 
because it's already we're, we're already at the at the finish line. Well, of course, as we've seen in the past decade, in the past two decades, really, uh, history has not, in fact, ended. In fact, it's returned with a vengeance. And these questions about what is the best way to organize a society have, in fact, come back also with a vengeance. So now there's there's plenty of places around the world that are questioning whether or not democratic governance is really the best uh, the best type, whether or not capitalist economies really are the best type. And there's nothing wrong with asking those questions because each of those systems have within them a number of flaws that need to be addressed. Corruption is one that's common to both and in fact links the two together. And so corruption within both countries that have democratic elections and countries that have capitalist economies has led to not only political inequalities, but also economic inequalities as well. And we should remember that in the 20th century, those kind of drastic inequalities and drastic imbalances in power were fuel for revolutionary fires, both in Europe and in Russia. We could do a separate show on that. That would be a topic for a separate discussion. But the point is, history has not ended. And so, at the same time that we have a, a, an increasing need for history to be studied, we had less interest and less manpower. And so I think those factors contributed to sort of the, the dynamic that you see at play today, where there's so much that is now considered to be up for grabs again. So in other words, questions that we thought were settled are all of a sudden being asked again. And this time, very different sets of answers have become more and more popular. And that is a function of not just the conditions and the, and the times that we live in, but also some dynamics of the field of history itself. Uh, an increased demand, but a, a reduced amount of manpower. And all this has created sort of a perfect storm, if you will, uh, of history. And, or the, the, when it comes to the study of history, how it's understood, and, and what it means in our daily lives. And we have, as a result which if you add into the mix, you know, pretty severe political polarization in the country, we have sort of a situation that resembles uh, the trenches in World War One, where we sort of have trench warfare. We have two sides that are just dug in to their own positions, and they don't talk much, they just take shots at each other. And so I think with pieces of legislation like this are supposed to be sort of, uh, sort of like one side rolling out its version of the big guns that they hope can help uh, blow up the other side. And that's probably not going to work out very well, even if the, the legislation does get passed. Uh, it's it's going to do little to address the actual underlying causes uh, or to rectify the, the shortage, the shortfall that we have, both in terms of uh, the number of people involved in the, the field of history and our need to have a, a good, solid understanding, uh, or at least a way to understand our past. So where does that leave us? Yes, we need to oppose legislation like Bill Request 60 here in Kentucky because it restricts the study of history at a very moment when we need to expand it. We need to encourage more young people to study history because we need more historians. And finally, if it's possible for two opposing groups to find even one thing that they agree on, that thing could potentially serve as the basis or the starting point for a better discussion. And when it comes to the, to the study of history in the past, I think it may be this. Whichever side you may be on, I think pretty much all sides agree that the past is important. And so if you're talking to a group and you know the past is important to them, and they know the past is important to you, that could be the basis for a, a, a starting point of a better discussion. Yes, 
The groups involved have radically different ideas about what the past means and how it should be taught, and we have to get through those problems. But if we both agree that we care about the past, that can be the starting point for better communication. So thanks for listening, and hope everyone has a great day.